turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 36, uh, halfway through verse 36. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the blessing of your holy word. We thank you for the blessing of your Holy Spirit. Lord, now as your word goes forth, we pray that you would cause it to uh, find fertile soil. Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, uh, minds to understand, hearts to receive your word. Lord, may there be no hardness of heart here, but Lord, may, may all of your words uh, find a willing reception. Lord, we know that your word is your word and not the word of man, and we pray that we would receive it as such. Father, I pray now that you would bless the preaching of your word. Uh, may you be glorified in it, may we be edified, and may those who do not know you be uh, convicted and brought to faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we pick up again with our series in John, and we come now to something of a parenthesis that is given. Jesus had been speaking of his death in the previous section, and what the results of it would be. The judgments of the world, the casting out of Satan, and the inclusion of the Gentiles in the kingdom of God. Uh, verse 36 then takes a bit of a break from the dialogue as John turns to address a possible objection to the claim that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, so let's look to the text, John 36, 12, verse 36 and following. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So John here gives us a summary statement that at the end of Jesus' public ministry about how Jesus was received by the Jews of his day. And that is, by and large, the Jews of his day rejected him. They did not believe in him. We see now coming to fruition what John had foreshadowed in his prologue, as he said there, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So here now, despite the many miracles Jesus had done in the presence of the people, uh, some we've seen outlined in John, the turning of water into wine, healing of the sick, opening the eyes of the blind man, even raising the dead to life, still they did not believe in him. And so all of this raises an interesting question 
perhaps even demands an explanation, and that is, what do we do with such large-scale, catastrophic unbelief among the very people who should have been the most eager to receive him? The argument was made historically. Surely we may call into question the messianic claims of one so thoroughly rejected by the Jewish people, by whom and for whom the prophetic scriptures were written. The reasoning goes, who would be better suited to evaluate messianic claims than the Jews? Right? Who knew the law better than the Pharisees? Right? These are the experts, these are the scholars, the first century equivalent of the seminary professors. So now as the preaching of the gospel is going forth, the objection comes, well, if you want me to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, how do you explain the fact that Jesus was so roundly rejected by the very people who knew the Old Testament best? Now, of course, we've seen time and again through John uh, how that question has been answered, showing the various ways in which the Jews of Jesus' day had misunderstood, misapplied, and even perverted the meaning of the scriptures. As we saw, if they had really known the law, they would have recognized that Jesus was the perfect fulfillment of it. If they had really known God as they claimed, they would have recognized Jesus, who was the perfect image of the invisible God, perfectly reflecting his nature and character. If they had been true sons of Abraham, Jesus told them, they would have done the things that Abraham did, which was to believe God. And Jesus declared instead, they had proven themselves to be the children of their real father, the devil. And so here now, John gives us another answer, showing that this rejection was not only foreseen by the scriptures, but necessitated by the scriptures. And so John actually turns the tables with this point. The very fact that Jesus was rejected becomes another argument in favor of his being the Messiah. For John is going to show that the scriptures themselves had prophesied that the Messiah would be rejected in this way. Verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, Catch this. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. So although the rejection of Jesus by the Jews might have been thought of as a reason to doubt that Jesus really was the Messiah, if we see that the Old Testament itself had prophesied this rejection, then it actually becomes an additional testimony to the fact that he is the Messiah. And this is exactly what we have. John says that despite all the miracles Jesus had done, they still did not believe. And this unbelief itself was a fulfillment of prophecy. They still did not believe so that the word of the Lord spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. So we have John presenting the unbelief of the Jews as a direct fulfillment of prophecy about the Messiah. It is therefore an additional reason to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. For if there was even a single messianic prophecy that Jesus did not meet, 
then Jesus would not have been the Messiah. Right? If God declares through his word, the Messiah will do this, and then Jesus does not do that thing, then Jesus would not be the Messiah. And so it is a matter that the gospel writers take very seriously to show that Christ fulfilled the prophecies about the Messiah. You see it again and again uh, as it is written. This happened in fulfillment. You see that a lot, especially in the Gospel of Matthew. And so we see this is John's purpose here. His readers are meant to see that Jesus fulfilled all that was written about the Messiah. Again, so that we will believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, we may have life in his name. Now, if you survey the Old Testament, you can begin to put together a picture of who the Messiah would be and what he would do. I think one of the great ways for us to strengthen and increase our faith is to see how Christ fulfills Old Testament prophecy. So I have a quick list here, and bear in mind there are many, many more we could look at. Genesis 3.15 promised a deliverer who would crush the head of the serpent, but who would be wounded in the process. Genesis 12.3 and 22.8 tell us the Messiah will come from Abraham's offspring. Numbers 24.17 says the Messiah will come from Israel, from Jacob. Genesis 49.10 says the Messiah will come from the tribe of Judah. 2 Samuel 7.13 says the Messiah will come from the line of David. Micah 5, 2, and 3 says that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Daniel 2, 44 says that the Messiah will come during the phase of the Roman Empire, that is the fourth kingdom from Nebuchadnezzar. And Isaiah 53 says that the Messiah would be rejected by men and die for the sin of his people. Who do you know from history? who fits this description. A descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A man from the tribe of Judah, the Lion of David, born in Bethlehem, born in the days of the Roman Empire. One who would then be rejected and give his life as an offering for sin. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus fulfilled these and many other prophecies. So let's turn now to the one that John brings up in Isaiah 53. You can turn with me there. Isaiah 53. This is the text John quotes in chapter 12, uh, where John wrote, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And that is Isaiah 53.1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So though the Lord would speak, the people would not believe. My Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? Though the arm of the Lord, though the power of the Lord would be revealed, and John applies this to the signs that were performed by Jesus, right? Though God's power was revealed through the signs, the miracles done by Christ, the people did not believe. Isaiah 53 goes on to describe more of what this rejection would all entail. Let's read together. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. 
He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So notice that one of the messianic prophecies was that the Messiah would be rejected. And so as John points out by quoting Isaiah, the rejection of Jesus in his own day is not a reason to doubt his claim to be the Messiah. It is rather additional reason to believe that he is the Messiah. For God had prophesied through Isaiah hundreds of years before that this would be the case, that the Messiah would not be believed, but that he would be despised and rejected by men. Now we'll come back to Isaiah 53, so put a bookmark there, keep a thumb in there. Uh, but for now, let's continue in John 12. John writes, Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Now this one is a quotation from Isaiah 6. Uh, so keeping your bookmarks in John 12 and Isaiah 53, you can turn with me to Isaiah 6. Uh, this one is the vision that Isaiah has of the throne room of God. Uh, it's a bit of a lengthy section that we'll read, but it is a fascinating one. Uh, and as we'll see, it has some very interesting implications as we look to how John applies it. Isaiah 6, verse 1 and following. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, or pardon me, sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the, the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. All right now, I know that's a lot, but stay with me here. So first off, to summarize this section, the prophet Isaiah has a vision of the heavenly throne room and he seems to be grasping for words to describe what he saw, trying to describe the indescribable. Isaiah, in the presence of God, is made painfully aware of his own sinfulness 
And he calls out in despair at his condition, Woe is me! Woe is me! His guilt is then atoned for, and he is commissioned to go and to speak to the people a message from God. And it is this message he is sent to preach that John quotes in John chapter 12. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Then in verse 11, Isaiah asks of God, How long, O Lord? Right? How long must I give this message? And I, I think we get the answer, why is this the message? Continuing in Isaiah 6, And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitants, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. So what this text is describing is what's called a judicial hardening of the people. Judicial hardening. Judicial hardening is when God hardens the heart of a sinful person or people in order to bring about additional judgments or to fulfill some other purpose. Now perhaps the most well-known example of this is that of Pharaoh. If you remember back to our Exodus series, God's intention was to deliver Israel out of Egypt in a way that would put God's wrath and power on display. As uh, the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So if you remember in that situation, God continued to harden Pharaoh's heart because God said he wanted to complete his judgment against Egypt. But it was God's intention from before he even sent Moses that he would bring Israel out with great acts of judgment, right? Uh, pouring out judgment upon the gods of Egypt. And so if Pharaoh had been willing to release Israel after the second or third plague, God's intention would not yet have been fulfilled. Right? God wanted his name to go forth, and that was going to be in response to the fullness of the plagues that God had in mind for Egypt. And so God says he continued to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he continued to refuse to release Israel until Egypt had experienced the fullness of what God intended. Right? The judicial hardening was for the purpose of, in this case, God showing his power in Egypt. Now we see a similar situation here in Isaiah 6, as God's intention there was to bring judgment upon Israel, right, until the cities would be lying without inhabitants, the houses desolate. And so God says he will harden their hearts, blind their eyes, so that he can bring the judgments he intends. And so now this, this passage from Isaiah 6 is not said to be fulfilled directly in Jesus' ministry. And so D.A. Carson writes, it may simply be listed as supporting evidence of the kind of judicial hardening that makes the prophecy of Isaiah 53.1 understandable. So, if this is correct, then we have John quoting two texts from Isaiah, one being a prophecy that the Messiah would be rejected, and the second one being an explanation of why the Messiah was rejected. So that would be to say Christ was rejected because there was a kind of judicial hardening upon the Jews of his day. And so this is John's point. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah has said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn, 
and I was healed them. So John shows that it was prophesied that the Messiah would be rejected, and that it was at least in part due to a judicial hardening upon the people. Now, as we consider this question of judicial hardening, uh, I know especially if it is a new concept that it can seem somewhat shocking uh, to hear of God being the one who would blind eyes and harden hearts. Many preachers today will speak about God as if he is only love, only acceptance and tolerance, the, the modern ideas of what love is. And so the, the concept of God bringing wrath or judgment or hardening is not really something that a lot of people are used to hearing about in relation to God. One of the objections that comes right away is, well, that's not fair. Right? From our way of thinking, it doesn't seem fair. Uh, perhaps it might even seem that God is being unjust to harden hearts or to blind eyes. So how ought we to understand this? Is God being unjust? When he hardened Pharaoh's heart, was God being unjust? Well, remember the question of justice is asking this question, are we getting what we deserve from God? Are we prepared to say that Pharaoh deserved better from God? Let's consider again, who is Pharaoh? Pharaoh was a tyrant. He, or his predecessor, had given the command to murder all of the Hebrew baby boys. Toss them into the Nile. Pharaoh was a pagan. He was an enslaver. He had kept the entire nation of Israel in slavery. Remember, in God's law, the death penalty is due to someone who stole a person to make them a slave. How much more someone who would take entire nations captive. Someone who would commit genocide, murder children. Pharaoh was a wicked man. God did not owe him favor. God was not obligated to reward him with good for his wickedness. Israel in Isaiah's day was wicked. Isaiah 1 verse 4, God had said of them, they were a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers. God had sent them warning after warning. He had been patient and long-suffering, and yet the people did not repent. They had trampled the covenant. They had done the things that God had warned would bring covenant curses, Deuteronomy 28. So we ask, what did they deserve? What would justice require? Judicial hardening is not God taking a righteous person and making them evil against their will. That has never happened, and that never will happen. Judicial hardening is itself a form of judgment for sin. So if we're tempted to think this isn't fair, let us always remember what fairness from God would actually mean. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. And so the reason that we're tempted to think of judgments from God as being unfair is because we don't really know 
what sin is. And the reason we don't know what sin is is that we don't know who God is. Isaiah saw. Isaiah knew. Isaiah saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, his robe filling the temple with these heavenly creatures, the seraphim, covering their eyes and feet as they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts, is Yahweh, commander of heaven's armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the thresholds shook, and the whole house was filled with smoke. Isaiah saw the glory of God, and what did he do? I'll tell you what he did not do. Isaiah did not shrug his shoulders and ask what all the fuss was about. Isaiah did not bring forward now his list of grievances with how God had been governing the universe. But rather, we see in the presence of the holiness of God, Isaiah cries out in utter despair, Woe is me. Woe is me. R.C. Sproul comments, Isaiah's use of woe was extraordinary. When he saw the Lord, he pronounced the judgment of God upon himself. Woe to me, he cried, calling down the curse of God, the utter anathema of judgment and doom upon himself. Isaiah continues, I am ruined. I am lost. I am undone. I am coming apart at the seams. From this one glimpse of the glory of God, Isaiah unraveled. He was exposed for what he was, a sinful man, a man of unclean lips. Sproul goes on. As long as Isaiah could compare himself to other mortals, he would be able to sustain a lofty opinion of his own character. The instant he measured himself by the ultimate standard, he was destroyed morally and spiritually annihilated. He was undone. We tend to think God's judgments are too severe because we don't know what sin is. And we don't know what sin is because we don't know who God is. But when we stand before this God, any illusions that we've held of our own moral goodness will evaporate. Any of our objections to the judgments of God or to the sovereign providence, the, the rule of God in this world, any objections we have will be shattered. They will be answered by the burning holiness of the sovereign maker and ruler of all things. When we come to see God for who he really is, we can then begin to see ourselves for who we really are we will begin to understand the heinousness of sin, the evil of sin, the sinfulness of sin. And what becomes stunning then is not that God would pour out judgment on the wicked, not that God will bring his wrath. What is stunning then is that God shows grace and mercy. John 12, 41. After quoting these texts from Isaiah, John says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory 
and spoke of him. Big question. Who is the him? Right, Isaiah saw his glory and spoke of him. But if you keep reading in John 12, the next verse makes it very clear that John is speaking of Jesus. This text, therefore, is another powerful testimony to the deity of Christ. That is to say, this is another section that demonstrates that Jesus is God. He is God the Son. For if you look at this text, consider this. If you were to ask Isaiah, whose glory did you see in your vision? His answer would be Yahweh of hosts. And here, if you were to ask John the same question, whose glory did Isaiah see? His answer would be Jesus. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, declares that Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus. It was a vision of the pre-incarnate Christ, God the Son, before he had entered into his own creation as a man. Isaiah 6 was a vision of the glory of Christ. And truly, to see his glory in its fullness would be enough to stop the mouths of all. It would be enough to send us to our knees as we come apart at the seams like Isaiah. The stunning thing not being the judgments of God. The stunning thing being the mercy of God. And as we see, even in this case, the judicial hardening that came upon the Jews was serving a higher redemptive purpose. As we saw, it was necessary that the Messiah would be rejected by men. It was prophesied to be so, and this rejection was not for nothing. It was serving a purpose. For it would be through the rejection of the Messiah that he would bring salvation. Let's turn again to Isaiah 53 and continue in this text. Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Why? To what end? To what purpose? Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds... We are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was not for nothing that Jesus was rejected. But we see that it was through this rejection that God was bringing salvation. And so here is what becomes stunning. Once the fog of sin begins to clear, and you begin to gain a true sight of who God really is, you aren't still complaining about God hardening hearts or bringing judgments 
you are instead awestruck by the mercy and grace of God. That he, the theme of heaven's praises, would enter into his own creation as a man to live a perfect life, to be rejected and despised, and to bear our griefs and carry our sorrows, to be stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God, to be pierced in his hands, his feet, and his side, not for anything he had done, but in order to bear our transgressions, to be crushed for our iniquities, to have upon himself the punishment that would bring us peace. In his grace and mercy, all of our sin is borne by him. It is forgiven through his sacrifice, so that all who come to him in repentance and faith are forgiven. What becomes stunning is not that God brings wrath against evildoers, but it is that he shows grace. For we see that we are no better than Pharaoh. We are not more deserving than Israel. For we too have sinned against a holy God. But in his grace, he has offered Christ. Let's finish up our text in John, verse 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So John observes that in spite of the large-scale hardening, and the rejection of Jesus by the Jews, uh, particularly the authorities who had put him to death, many of the authorities had believed in him. That is to say, they had a form of faith. The evidence was strong enough to convince them of the facts of the case. They knew Jesus to be a man sent from God. As Nicodemus had said on behalf of some of the Pharisees, he said, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him, John 3, verse 2. They knew that it had to be the power of God at work in these signs, these healings, the opening, the eyes of the blind, and the raising of the dead. The evidence was all there. And so they believed the facts about Jesus. Perhaps even knew it to be true that he was the promised Messiah. Yet we see here that there was still something deficient in their faith. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So these authorities, be they priests or Pharisees, members of the Jewish ruling council, some of them had become convinced of the truthfulness of Jesus' claims, Yet they knew that if they were to profess this publicly, it would come at a cost to them. Right? They would lose their position of authority. They would lose the honor and respect they enjoyed as leaders among the Jews. They would even be kicked out of the synagogue, like the blind man who, who had been healed by Jesus. And so they would not confess whatever this faith was. They functionally denied their faith. Such hidden faith or secret faith that refuses to confess Christ will not do. In the beginning of this dialogue, back in verse 25, Jesus had said that those who love their life 
will lose it. But whoever hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus' disciples must follow his pattern, picking up their crosses daily and following him. They must die to themselves, not clinging to their earthly lives, not seeking to live life on their terms, not living for the glory of man. Matthew 10, 32 and 33, Jesus said, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. These from among the authorities knew the truth. They knew of the evidence. Lazarus was alive. The blind man's eyes were still open. They couldn't deny it. They knew the facts. They knew the truth about Jesus, but they would not confess it. Such belief is not enough. The fact is the demons have this kind of faith. They know it is true that Jesus is the Holy One. They know the facts about him. They know that he is the Messiah sent from God, that he died and rose again. Simply knowing and assenting to the facts is not saving faith. Simply knowing but not confessing is still denying Christ. Now for those of us born and raised in this area, we have grown up in a place and a time where there has not been much of a cost to publicly confessing Christ. But if our nation and our community continues down the path it is on, the day may come for us, if it hasn't already, when there will be a cost. See, these authorities among the Jews were afraid of losing their positions, afraid of being cast out from the synagogue, excluded from certain parts of public life. Now, this may become a real possibility for us as well. If that day comes, and you are forced to choose between confessing your faith or denying Christ in order to cling to the life you have. Do not comfort yourself on that day by thinking you can deny him publicly, but believe privately. Such believers who deny Christ before men will be denied by Christ. Saving faith is more than just acknowledging the facts about Christ. Demons know the facts about Christ, and they tremble. True faith, the kind that God works in the heart, not only knows the truth, but delights in the truth. It tastes the goodness of the truth. It sees the beauty of the truth and rejoices in it. It sees Christ coming to him, being known by him as that treasure hidden in a field, which a man in his joy sold everything he had in order to obtain it. So if you want to know how you are likely to respond when the pressure is applied, begin by looking at how you're living now. If you're not willing to live out your faith when things are easy, what reason do you have to think it'll be different when things get harder. If you've made it a habit to consistently choose selfishness 
comfort, and convenience over devotion to Christ. Then do not imagine that you will suddenly become a picture of selflessness and courage when the heat is turned up. As the quote has it, don't say you'll go to jail for your faith when you won't even go to church for it. Brothers and sisters, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Confess Christ now. Confess him in the little things, in the details of your life, the habits and patterns you follow daily. If you have not yet, then confess Christ publicly through baptism, right? identifying yourself as a follower of Christ, being buried with him and raised to walk in newness of life. Confess Christ through your life by putting your anxiety to death. Confess Christ through your life by living out gospel grace to those around you. Confess Christ through your life by communing with him daily through his word, prayer, and meditation. Confess Christ in your life by showing his love and concern for the lost, for the poor and the widow and the sojourner. May every part of your life declare, Christ is Lord. Amen.